Hello, I'm Graham Ruddick, and this is Business Leader, a podcast that takes a second look at big business stories and asks, did these stories really happen the way we think they did? And what can we learn from them today? Business Leader is the new name for the Business Studies podcast. For all the existing listeners of Business Studies, welcome back. You can expect more of the same and the even better. For those of you listening who used to listen to the Business Leader podcast in the past, hello and welcome. I hope you enjoy the new sound. What can you expect? Well, we will be speaking to leading figures in business and beyond about stories of extraordinary success, failure, deals, and much, much more. In this episode, we will look at how a man from Western Sydney became chief executive of a £16 billion business with a very different purpose to any other. Its purpose is creating lasting and shared prosperity for the nation. If you think that sounds grand, then consider what it actually owns, Regent Street and St James's in London, the seabed around the UK, 185,000 acres of farmland across the country, 17 shopping centres and leisure parks, and Windsor Great Park. This is the Crown Estate, whose origins can be traced back to 1760, when George III handed over land and property to the government. Its chief executive today is Dan Labad. We've got, um, you know, a diverse set of stakeholders. And, and if you go back 260 odd years, you know, the government and the royal household are our two key stakeholders. Today, we operate under the Crown Estate Act, the 1961 Act, um, and our independence, we have an independent board. And that independence is important for all our stakeholders because it allows us to get on and do the things that we need to do under the, under the remit. But we obviously keep our stakeholders informed around what we're doing. And as you would expect, you know, both with government and the royal household, given our focus on everything from the environment, net zero, right through to, you know, the profits that we create for the country, all incredibly important and needed at the moment, keeping them up to date. And there's obviously a good relationship there. In terms of my own, you know, I, I've, um, I'm very lucky, you know, I've got a great team around me here. And I often, you know, draw my support from the team, from my family, and I've got a network of people outside of the Crown Estate. And I'm very, very lucky to have a group of people around me, sometimes close, sometimes loose, but who I know will tell me what I need to hear, not what I want to hear. And I think um, I've learned to learn over the last sort of 15 years, I guess, of doing leadership type roles, my greatest lessons from the friction points, you know, learning from either failure or from when someone's told you something that doesn't land comfortably but ultimately is the truth and you have to adjust. And I find in this job you're constantly adjusting, you're constantly course correcting because, you know, you're you're not doing leadership, you're being leadership and you're holding an energy. And in order to do that, you know, it's being very open about what you're getting wrong and being very honest about that just as much as it is about celebrating what you're getting right. 
You may have heard the Crown Estate referred to as the King's Property Company, but that's not really accurate. The organisation in its modern form was established by an Act of Parliament in 1961, which set the Crown Estate as an independent commercial business, managed by a board known as the Crown Estate Commissioners. This Act said the Crown Estate must grow the value of its portfolio into perpetuity and pay its annual profits to the government. In 2011, the Treasury tweaked this arrangement slightly. It said that the public payment the royal household would get to fund their official duties would be set at a percentage of the Crown Estate's annual profits. Today, it is set at 12% of the profits. That payment is known as the Sovereign Grant. But the Crown Estate has nothing to do with the royal palaces or the Duchess of Cornwall and Lancaster. Indeed, the Crown Estate has tried to deal with the issues around its structure via a Q&A on its website. First question in that Q&A is, does the Crown Estate belong to the King? And this is the answer. No, the Crown Estate is not the private property of the King. Our assets are hereditary possessions of the Sovereign held in right of the Crown. This means they belong to the Sovereign for the duration of their reign, but cannot be sold by them, nor do revenues from the assets belong to them. The government does not own the Crown Estate either. The latest results from the Crown Estate show how well the organisation has been doing. In the last financial year, its portfolio increased in value by 1.3%, 15.8 billion. Its annual profits rose 42% to £443 million. The Crown Estate has been benefiting from offshore wind farms being built on the UK's seabed. When you think about strategy and you think about the organisation, the first thing you've got to ask yourself is, why do we exist as an organisation? Why are we here? In the Crown Estate, that why is right there in the centre of its constitution, the Act. And then you sort of sit back and you say, well, what capability do we have to offer in our national land holding, not only on the ground but also at sea? What does the world need? And where those Venn diagrams overlap, that's where we should be aiming. That's what we should be doing. As opposed to what I've seen sometimes organisations do is they're doing things and then they try to retrospectively overlay their purpose. The other thing that was very fortunate at the Crown Estate was the gift that I inherited is that people are incredibly passionate about working for this organisation. They love the fact that they come to work and they get to create value for the country. You know, that's hugely important. It's why I work for the Crown Estate. That's why I came here because I wanted, I wanted to do that. And so what we've been doing for the last three and a half, four years is building on a wonderful legacy, but, but re-gearing the organisation to the needs of the future, as it's always done, but doing that in a 2020 look-forward context. The energy transition and the challenges of net zero. We have been at the forefront of renewable technology on the seabed for 25 years, working in partnership with government, working with partnership with developers from around the world. We are second in the world only to China. It is a huge UK success story, but the needs of the future are different to what got us here. So therefore, the question we've been asking ourselves is how do we accelerate deployment in a way that enables us to achieve our net zero targets and turn the 11 gigawatts that we're of generating capacity that we have today into 30, 40, 50 over the period ahead. 
we are thinking about the environment in partnership with that, not only in terms of how do we roll out that infrastructure in a way that achieves net zero, but how do we protect the seas while we do that? They're coming under a huge amount of pressure at the moment from an environmental perspective. You shift that to land where the sixth largest rural landowner in the country, the future of agriculture, how we develop regenerative agricultural practices with our customers, how do we think about the balance between agriculture and nature recovery, and how do we get that right? How do we use the economic development that will come from the deployment of renewables such that the UK can reap the benefits of that economic development through jobs, through industry, through housing, in a regeneration capacity across the country? And how do we continue to focus on the future of London? London's not going to fall off a cliff, but London needs to be a global city. It needs to be the best of the best. Um, we can't afford to lose that and we can't afford to be complacent about it. But equally, it has to also be local. You know, one of the things that the pandemic taught us was you can't just rely on 50 million people a year walking down your street to be successful. We have to fight for patronage. We have to activate the city and we have to make it a place where people want to be and all people want to be, not just you know a small cohort of people. Uh, it has to be diverse. It has to be activated. It has to be for everybody. And it has to, again, reflect the country. So, you know, I could have given you that story in the four business units we have. Yes, we have a marine business unit. Yes, we have a regional business unit. Yes, we have a rural business unit. And yes, we have a London business unit. But that's just organizational structure. You know, what we're trying to do is look at how we get into the middle of that Venn diagram and have an impact working in partnership. This is not about us in isolation. This is about working in partnership. We're also, and it's really important that I say this, no better than anybody else. You know, we, we're like any other business. We have our issues and, you know, we're, 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 we're trying to keep up with the world like everybody else. But we do have a set of attributes because of the way we sit between the private sector and government that allows us to come to problems and bring a partnership approach in different ways. And, that, and that's working and that's what we need to be doing more of. Why does it make sense for one organisation to, to oversee those four business units? And how do you as a CEO go about managing an organisation that is really big, but also really diverse? You know, we are UK specific, England, Wales and Northern Ireland, in fact. You know, but putting it simply, our raw material is land. And the way that that land was empowered on behalf of the country 100 years ago is very different to the way it'll need to be empowered in 100 years. And what's interesting when you think about, you know, the specific industries, you know, whether you're a renewable expert on the seabed or you're a property developer in London, you're having to deal with biodiversity, you're having to deal with net zero, you're having to deal with digital disruption, you're having to deal with community engagement, you're having to deal with, you know, and bring in partnerships in all sorts of new ways. And so land has a massive contribution to make to some of the national needs. In fact, I would argue that without the effective use of our national land holdings on sea and on the ground, on terra firma, um, we're not going to rise to these challenges. So I think the Crown Estate is incredibly well-placed to think about some of the systems challenges the country's facing in a very holistic way. And the reason we're able to do that is because we have a national ownership that allows us to think nationally in the way that we're solving problems. And the final thing I'd say about that is that, you know, also what I, what I 
sort of often talk to people about. If you think about when I was trained as a property developer, no, no job is easy, but there were railroad tracks. You need to know about property. You need to know about property investment. You need to know about a certain finite number of stakeholder relationships. To be in property today, and I could argue this about any, any field, you have to know or at least be able to bring people and partnerships around you that know a lot more than just property because in order to get property done, you have to overcome energy challenges and you have to overcome digital challenges and you have to make sure that the people involved in what you're creating want it in the way that you're creating it. Otherwise, you lose your license to operate. And so there is a commonality that exists in the way that we operate regardless of where the Crown Estate hits the ground that brings those those attributes to bear. And that and that is why it works. What's the most common misconception about the Crown Estate and your own job? Well, you know, there's probably a few. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that we're, you know, that we're very traditional and that, you know, we're slow. And, you know, we have our moments like everybody else, but um, we are a very dynamic, diverse company fighting to be more dynamic and diverse every day. I guess... You know, as the chief executive, one of the things I'd say by way of example is our head of communications said to me uh, a few months ago that I, I need to get out and tell the business the real story about who I am because a lot of people who are new to the organization or new in our stakeholder set think you're the chief executive of the Crown Estate. You know, you're the complete article. You know, you've gone to all the right schools and you say words in the right ways and, you know, and that couldn't be further from the truth, you know, in terms of, you know, I've, I've had a quite varied journey to be here. If somebody had said to me 20, 30 years ago, one day you're going to run the Crown Estate, I would have thought that they'd been smoking something. And so, you know, we are an organisation that more and more represents the country. Uh, and again, we have work to do on that. We have more work to do like, like any business does. But we we are not we are not that sort of that traditional bureaucratic live in the past type of place. We are incredibly progressive, and in fairness to the people that work here, incredibly. And I think this is the most important thing: passionate about serving, passionate about supporting the country. Dan Labad was appointed chief executive of the Crown Estate in 2019. Before that. He worked for the Australian property developer Lendlease for 16 years, including as chief executive of its European and international business. He'd moved to London in 2006 after growing up in Sydney. Chance had a big role to play here. Um, so I, um, I grew up in Sydney, in Western Sydney, first generation Australian. My father's from Egypt, my mother's from Italy. I'm the eldest of three boys, so I didn't really have an older brother role model. to. So I was sort of figuring it out as I went. Got into university by the skin of my teeth. In fact, um, got in through an entrance exam, not through sort of the equivalent of A-levels because the area of Sydney that I lived in sort of had second chances and I was given a second chance. But it made me incredibly, both the values that my family, I guess, bestowed in me, working class, everyone's equal. Um, combined with me realizing that I needed to fight to have a future, drove me to sort of want more. And um, I got into university in my second year of university. I, I, I was I won a scholarship to exchange to a foreign university over in Canada for twelve months, and it was a really 
serendipitous moment, you know, changed my life because um, I grew up and I, I realized I had this thirst to understand the world and then came back to Sydney and because of affordability and a number of other things, spent the next sort of 10 years finishing university and starting my career including joining Land Lease, but doing a couple of other left field things because I didn't really know. I didn't sort of, when I was in my 20s, I wasn't there. Oh, one day I want to be CEO. I was just trying to figure out my place in the world. Um, discovered sustainability and, and, and that passion. That passion really comes from, I think, as I've discovered as I've gotten older, um, a social justice piece that I have deep inside, probably from seeing my father grow up in Sydney, when I say grow up as a young man moving into, obviously, through his life, speaking English with a thick Arabic accent and, you know, watching the way he was treated. And I've never suffered from any bias or any discrimination, but I watched him, you know, experience a lot. And I think, you know, I, I it, 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 it really, that then triggered, I guess, what evolved into something more than that was just social but also environmental. Uh, but I still hold on to the social piece dearly. A number of examples of that, but probably the best one is, um, well, one of the best ones is my commitment to health and safety and how passionate I, I, you know, I believe in that. Like, I think it's a foundation of sustainability, being able to ensure that if you're responsible for something in life, whether it's your child or it's your business, you know, ensuring that you do what it takes to keep the people that you're responsible for safe. I think that is the foundation of of it. You know, uh, I think it's a foundation of sustainability. With that. I wanted to travel. I'd met my wife, my girlfriend at the time, and she wanted to travel. And over we came. We were going to go and live in Madrid. Um, and I was going to run Lendlease's continental European business from Madrid. Uh, went over there, worked out where we were going to stay. This is this is the Christmas of, I think it was 2005, 2006. But on the way back, there were two gentlemen running Lendlease at the time in Europe, in out of the UK, Nigel Hugel and Robin Butler, uh, who now run a company called Urban, a very successful company called Urban and Civic. Uh, and I spent six weeks with them and they asked me to stay. Um, and and I did. And we ended up in London. That's how it happened. And I've never looked back. You know, doing an apprenticeship under them was fantastic because obviously culturally, whilst Australians and the Brits, we, we, you know, we speak the same language, culturally there are a lot of differences, you know, and and, and learning how to operate in this market has been, you know, took a number of years. It's not something you just sort of fly in and do. And in fact, in my Len Lease years, I learned that around the world. It doesn't matter whether it was Australia and Britain, it's everywhere. You've got to be very, very sympathetic to local culture and you've got to be able to invest in understanding. And I think given I grew up in an Italian Arabic household, it may have helped me a little bit with that. But we fell in love with the UK. We fell in love with London. Uh, and, you know, we've contemplated where to live over the years and you know you know we love it here absolutely love it and obviously now we have a little girl and she's she speaks with a a, a local accent and we <laughs> we sound like the foreigners which is all, all wonderful all wonderful and and I think that's important because you have to believe in where you work and I don't think it would be appropriate for me to be running the crown estate if I didn't believe in this country and I didn't believe in what the crown estate represents and I don't do that lightly, you know. It's not something that that I sort of do involuntarily. It's a voluntary decision to, to one, realising the privilege of having that opportunity because it is a privilege, and two, making sure that I take that responsibility seriously. And part of that is making sure I believe in what I'm doing. And, and I'm a firm believer that as a leader, 
you've got to have purpose and you can't have purpose if you don't believe in what you're doing. I read in one of the other interviews that you've done that that you from a young age you you started to believe that the world needed to change and that's been something that's driven driven you. Where did that stem from? I, I think it stemmed from that social injustice piece, seeing that that things weren't right um, in there was probably a number of areas, but becoming aware enough of the world in my teenage years and then as I hit my twenties to to see that you know the way things were done weren't work you know wasn't working and then when you when I sort of discovered in my early twenties the whole sustainability movement and and immersed myself in that and and got myself educated in it then it was you know it was my, it was my sort of awakening because again I you know it was a fairly sheltered upbringing in in Western Sydney with not a lot of role modeling and discovering the world it took, it took that and then that expanded expanded and then and then it was you know I just felt very differently and I think I think where the drive to change comes from is the fact that, you know, I've got many memories of sitting around my grandparents' table, uneducated, uh, relatively speaking, fought in the war. All they cared about and what made them happy was being in a safe country. For them, it was Australia post-war and having food on the table and their family around the table. That was happiness for them. That's That was success. So I wake up having had a good life, being well-educated, yes, having some challenges on the way, and but then with that, sitting there and saying, how dare I, how dare I just wake up every day and take it as it comes? I've got to take it on. I have a responsibility to do that. And I guess the world that we live in today, which none of us ever envisaged 30 years ago we'd be living in today, we didn't know what we were going to live in today, is incredibly volatile. Uh, and we have challenges that are facing us that need addressing. And those challenges aren't going to go away. And I think if you are responsible for an institution or for something that can have influence, part of that responsibility is doing what you can. You can't do it on your own, but doing what you can to drive positive change. Uh, And I feel really strongly about that. And I want to be careful because I've been around the block a few times. You know, I used to say change the world. Now I say nudge it in the right direction because change is hard. But I think there needs to be a lot more nudging. You've touched on this a little bit already, but what was it like for you when you first arrived in the UK property industry? Because to put it kindly, it's it's a pretty white, pretty male, pretty upper class industry. Did you feel like it was it was a club and you weren't a member when you first arrived? Yeah, absolutely. But I, I've had many instances in my life where I've felt excluded, like I think like most people. And I've had many times, and I've spoken about this publicly, you know, where, where I've felt imposter syndrome, but most people do. But I think for me, and this is a personal thing, I thrive on the challenge. I, I enjoy the challenge of beating that um, and winning it over and doing what I need. Because, you know, I, I, I had a lot of time. When I was younger, I had a few moments where I, I could have rebelled and attempted to change things in a different way, which wouldn't have ended well. And and I learned a long time ago that I, I, I need to work within the system to change the system. What I can't do is forget my ideals and forget the drive and 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 forget why you've you you work in the system such that you don't fight for the things you believe in anymore. But I learned a long time ago to try to do it with the system, not against it. And win over and beat the imposter piece or the exclusion piece and grow influence and and then use that influence, I guess. What were those early lessons you learned? I remember moments where, you know, because I remember back in 2005, I was running sustainability for 
Lend-Lease. And I remember both in that organisation but also across industry uh, through things like the Australian Green Building Council at the time because I was part of the UK mm. Green Building Council before that, the Australian Green Building Council. And, you know, I was very idealistic and I was incredibly passionate. I've never been, um, and this is a good and bad thing, uh, I've never been um, intimidated by hierarchy, something that I really try to encourage at the Crown Estate. Hierarchy is a social construct. Yes, we need it for organising principles because if we're not, if, we if there's a hierarchy, we can't organise ourselves. But apart from that, it adds no value. I've, I'm a big believer in that. Coming back to my point, we're all equal. I think, you know, what would happen often is, you know, I found myself being at the receiving end of criticism because I was trying to push a sustainability angle that people at the time didn't even believe in, let alone disagreed with the content. They just didn't believe in it. And I remember trying to sell it, trying to sell it, trying to sell it. And, you know, eyes would glaze over, eyes would glaze over. And, you know, you're just getting nowhere. And I remember the anger and the rage inside me and the injustice I would feel when that would happen. And I had many moments where, you know, that would that would mean I would display the wrong behaviours, say in a business context. But I was lucky enough when I was younger to have people around me that would guide me and help me focus that drive and that anger in beating the cynics, in beating the system and being creative around not breaking the rules but being entrepreneurial within the system to get to the outcome that you were looking for by taking people on the journey a different way building your own influence so that the next time you spoke to them there was a different level of mutual respect whatever you know whatever it took in order to get to get the outcome and i think even to this day when you think about you know a chief executive and and what a chief executive does in in um, taking you know his or her board stakeholders customers on a journey you know you don't get it all right and you often come under criticism and so you should that's part of the job it makes you a better leader but those are the skills that we all use in order to get from A to B, you know, to move our organisations forward. How, how do you, you touched on that a little bit there, but how do you put those principles into action today in terms of leading, leading this business and how you manage, but also how you've sought to improve increased diversity here? Well, I think the biggest thing is that, you know, when I think about my opening comments about the Crown State and our aspirations, you know, we are you know, going to be over the next few months rolling out a world-first leasing program uh, for offshore wind. We are doing work at the moment in central London to look and consult on the future of Regent Street. Um, we're looking at how we work regionally around the country to support economic development, including capturing the benefit of offshore renewables. Uh, and we're looking at the future of agriculture and ensuring that we're shaping our agricultural portfolio and our natural capital portfolio in the right way. That doesn't happen because the chief executive turns up every day and says it should. It happens because we have an empowered group of people that feel entrepreneurial in the way that they operate, in the way that they work with stakeholders, in the values that they bring to everything that they do. So that's not my way. That's their own way because everyone has to find that within themselves. But we're not producing widgets. We're doing highly complex things across a scale and diverse operation. Yes, we set the goalposts, the frameworks, the broad rules, the risk appetite, but there's a lot to play with within that. And what we spend a lot of our time doing is role modelling, using real-life examples of what good looks like, taking mini failures and actually not you know, sweeping them under the carpet but talking about them. And what have we learned from this and how do we get better next time? You know, and building an organisation that is empowered to, to do more and more. That's how you get what I'm talking about done. Yeah, and I think from a diversity and inclusion perspective, I've got to start with me. You know, I've talked in this interview about 
some of the diversity challenges I've had in what I've seen in you know in, in my family, but that doesn't make me uh, an expert in this area at all. And in fact, one of the things that I've learned over the years is that I'm in fact really ill-equipped in a big part of this agenda. And it's because we all have different lived experiences. And even if you have had diverse lived experiences, there's still limited lived experiences compared to certainly when I think of the Crown Estate and our stakeholders, I'm representing vast amounts of more diversity than I've ever experienced. So how do you take your organisation on a journey that can discover that, uncover it and do different things? And I think the best example uh, of learning for me is that, um, and this comes back to, I guess, the... (laughs) The other, the bad side of 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 being insensitive to to high insensitive is the wrong word. I just don't, I just don't get nervous around hierarchy. Is probably the way I'd, I'd put it. You know, I don't I don't that doesn't worry me. But but because I do respect hierarchy, I just don't I just don't feel nervous around it. And you often feel that, you know, when I say something as a chief executive, people will also feel that way. You know, yes, you're the boss. We hear you. We respect you. But that's it. You're the boss. That's it. There's nothing more to the hierarchy than that. But actually, what I notice is that you say something, it has a ripple effect. And I've had to, over the years, and this has been like a 15-year journey, get much better at actually understanding in a more pronounced way the impact of what I say when I say it when you're seen as the boss. Is that a key quality for this job, given the links to the king and given the links to government? No, because I respect hierarchy. And I think you have to respect hierarchy. I think that's important. All I'm saying is that I don't, you know, I don't freeze when it's around. You know, I don't, I, I don't sort of, I don't pander to it. I, I, I have a job to do and I do it. And, and I guess uh, one of the things I would say is that coming back to the diversity, equity, inclusion agenda, hierarchy is, is an issue in this country and it is ingrained in people in a different way to what I'm used to. And key part of my role is to, help the people in this organization find the best in themselves. And part of that is often, not with everyone, but with a lot of people, overcoming the disproportionate effect of hierarchy. Um, you know, for example, when I arrived at the Crown Estate for the first month I was here, everything that I said people tended to agree with. And I thought, gee, I must just be getting everything right. And then, you, <laughs> you know, you realize quite quickly that's not the case because there is a, and, you know, getting people to, it doesn't matter if you're the chief executive or anyone else around the table. It's not around. It's not about who's on the table. It's about what's on the table. And if you have a place in the room, you have an ability to contribute, and you should contribute. And no idea is a stupid idea. And in fact, sometimes those that put the ideas on the table. This is a diversity point, right? Those that put ideas on the table that come from a diverse perspective, or don't have domain knowledge, but come at it from a different angle altogether. Sometimes hack the breakthroughs that you need in order to solve problems. And it happens more often than we think. We certainly find that here. And I think that what I believe in is making sure that hierarchy doesn't stop people disproportionately. It's to be respected. It is important for organizing things in a business, but it shouldn't stop people speaking up and being part of solving problems because coming back to the challenges we have as a company, as a country, it's not going to be solved by the people at the top. It's going to be solved by everybody leaning in and playing their part. But in order to do that, we've got to create environments where people feel comfortable. At the Crown Estate, Dan Labad looks after high-profile urban areas such as Regent Street, 
in London. At Lendlease, he oversaw major regeneration projects, such as the construction of the Athletes' Village for London 2012, the redevelopment of the land around the O2 on the Greenwich Peninsula, and the expansion of Sydney Airport in Australia. So, unsurprisingly, he has some fascinating views on what makes a successful regeneration project and how to support communities. I think it is really hard and I think it would be disingenuous for me to sit here and say there is a formula that any developer can sit here and say this is what makes a great place. I think great places would be determined by history, by the people that live there and comment on them down the track. What I think we're doing is we're constantly learning because we're dealing with new dynamics. I mean, if you take the area around Victorian Park, a lot of Victorian architecture, um, that era of the Victorian build era that has led to a London that we know today or the parts of London that are Victorian that have evolved to engender modern living villages in different parts of the mix of different housing tenures, you know, they're great places. And but that's that's a two hundred year plus story, you know that we're we're telling there the way that places evolve and that the way that they're they were never designed to be ephemeral but they've become that way they're flexible and they they now house modern living and we protect we protect them um, with conservation and heritage and other things and the fact that you know for again a whole host of reasons there's green space in London everywhere for for a whole host of historical reasons including fires and and other things and that's that's also great the challenge today is. Social mobility, and I mean that in the physical sense, is operates at a much more accelerated level. And we are trying to take what used to happen over hundreds of years, often by bit by design, but a bit by chance, and create formulas to make them work today. And I think there's some things that thematics that we've learned over the last 40, 50 years, mistakes that have been made um, that can sort of help you develop insights into what a pathway to good might be. But I think you've got to be really careful to sort of sit here and say, this is the formula for a great place. It's very, very difficult to, to do that. The things that I've learned, you've got to, places have to be platforms for evolution. They can't be fixed. They can't be, they can't be over curated. And what I mean by that is you've got to allow a, place to evolve in the way that you think about its design and things that support that diversity in housing tenure equality in housing tenure green space activation ensuring that there's amenity uh, ensuring that there's permeability and ensuring that you are allowing communities that exist before a change to actually continue to exist through that change and you're, you're, you're limiting or avoiding altogether displacement. That's really, really important because it's very difficult to recreate what was once there. And I think themes like that are incredibly important learnings. But I sit here today and I feel like, you know, even if we're talking about the centre of London, a very different type of place, a huge amount of responsibility because, you know, we're standing on history's shoulders and we're, we're custodians of something that has meant so much to this country. Well, how, how do you shape that for the future? How, and how do you do it in a responsible way and don't get caught up in what you think from a binary perspective you might think is good, but you can capture and encapsulate the views of a multitude of stakeholders to 
come together and define what good looks like. And that'll probably leave me to the last thing. It's important that given everyone, and this is in all lines of our work, but certainly in the area of placemaking, everyone has a different view of what good looks like, what a good place looks like, what a good home looks like, what a good community looks like. And part of the role of those that are responsible for shaping the future of these things, whether they're new or they're evolved, is to ensure that they're trying to embrace a diverse set of views under a common vision that will take some give and take. There'll need to be some compromise because there's no such thing as making everything perfect for everyone in this day and age. But you strive to do the best you can to encapsulate the common good that reflects either an existing community, a new community, or a combination of both. You've been listening to Business Leader with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. For more business news and analysis, check out businessleader.co.uk or sign up for our newsletter, Off to Lunch, where you'll get daily updates on the news, analysis and ideas that matter. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com.